whatever. Hey, good morning. Welcome. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you're new to us today, we're, we're glad you're here. If you're old to us today, we're kind of glad you're here. No, we, we're glad you're here. It's good to be with everyone. Uh, we will pick up in our Job study that we began last week. Uh, we, we got back into it last week after taking a week off. And last Sunday, in our Job study, Sovereign Suffering, we looked at the final part of Job's response to his friend Bildad in chapter 10, where Job pleaded with God and asked four agonized questions. Do you remember what they were if you were with us? Why are you against me? Why do you watch me? Why did you create me? And why don't you leave me alone? These are the things that Job asked God through his poetry. It was a pretty, pretty tough section, pretty, pretty sad section. In the next part, the third friend of Job speaks up, Zophar. It's like gopher with a Z. He was probably the, the youngest of the three friends that came to visit Job since the speaking order usually went from oldest to youngest in antiquity, in the old days. So he's probably the youngest guy there. And Zophar is always identified in the book of Job as Zophar the Naamathite. We see this in chapter 2, verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, our text, chapter 20, verse 1, and chapter 42, verse 9. Naamathite might refer to his hometown or to his particular people group. Eliphaz and Bildad are, and this is really interesting to me, they're identified in the same way. It's always Eliphaz the uh, Temanite. It's always Bildad the Shuite. You see this throughout the book. So every time these men, these friends of Job are identified, their origin or people group is always associated with them. They're never just called Eliphaz or Bildad. It's always Eliphaz the Temanite and what have you. I think that's an interesting thing. I actually had to do a little research to figure that out because it's like, why do they keep identifying? It's like Phil of Modesto. Why not just Phil? I don't want to be known as Phil of Modesto. Nobody that lives in Modesto wants to be known of Modesto. Maybe 30 years ago. But it's an interesting point in the book of Job. Of the three friends, Zophar was by far the cruelest. His first speech that we're going to look at today, it earned him three, a three-chapter response from Job, which is the longest response to any of the friends thus far. Everyone else has been one chapter from Job or two chapters at most. And, and Job writes back or, or speaks back to Zophar with three full chapters. I think it was like 75 verses. So that gives you kind of a sense of the content of Zophar's first speech. And I want you to notice, if you have an ESV Bible, the little section title above where it says chapter 11. Do you see it there? It says, Zophar speaks, colon, you deserve worse. Yeah, yeah. At some point, translators inserted these little headings to give their readers the basic gist of each section. And sometimes they're very, very helpful, and sometimes they completely miss the point. In this scenario, translators literally pulled from Zophar's own words at the end of verse 6, where he literally tells Job, Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. To say that Job had been spared the judgment he actually deserved from God after Losing his wealth, children, and health was unspeakably cruel, even demonic. Zophar's message in general is essentially the same as that of Eliphaz and Bildad. You know, Job was suffering because he had sinned, and we know that's not true, but that's what these friends think. Same message, but Zophar's version of it was delivered with much more anger, much more ferocity, much more cruelty. I know we're not supposed to have favorites or, or say we don't like a person or hate a person, but I hate Zophar. Zophar is a jerk. He is. He, he, I don't really hate. I guess I hate him. I don't know. And now I'm confessing to you I hate somebody, but after reading his letter and studying it, the guy, the guy is a butthead. The guy is a total, total jerk. He is totally, totally cruel. He's way worse than the other guys. I just kept reading this going, how could Job be friends with a person like this? And may, maybe of the three friends, this is the guy that Job knew less, uh, less than the others. But he is, he is just, he's a hot mess. He's mean. He's angry. 
He's ferocious. He's cruel. He's more than accusatory. He attacks Job. Eliphaz and Bildad in the book of Job made three speeches each, but Zophar, he only did two, and I thank God for that. He only does two. The other friends did three apiece. So now it's time to take your Bibles and turn over to Job 11. We're going to look at this first speech from this hothead, this angry, angry, mean, and cruel friend, this terrible, terrible friend. This is not a friend that any of us would want. We're going to walk through the entire chapter, and we're going to look at some S's. I like to lay out things in in letter form. We're going to look at three S's. I think we should pray before we actually get to work. We need to pray because this letter makes me mad. It does. Lord, I, I just pray that you calm me down because after reading this, I, I, I wanted to choke this dude. And um, I know, I know that, uh, that, that his message to Job twice in this book, I know it's here for a reason. And I, I like what you said about these three friends, especially Zophar toward the end of the book. And we'll talk about that in a little while. And you're going to teach us some lessons on on how we are to speak truth to people. Because what Zophar did here with the truth is appalling. And we must never follow this pattern, although I think we we follow it quite regularly, especially for those of us, not me anymore, praise God, uh, 2017, I got rid of it. For those who are on social media, that is a narcissistic platform where we do like to attack others. And we like to speak truth without love. And so, Lord, just teach us from your word today not to be a Zophar. Reveal to us today through your word, his behavior, his attitude, and how you feel about that. Just speak to us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll pick it up with the first S. This is where we left off last week, and it's going to be number one, Zophar's stinging rebuke. Zophar's stinging. There's the S. Stinging rebuke. We see this in verses 1 through 6. We'll pick it up at verses 1 through 3. After Job speaks, now Zophar speaks, and it says, Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? Of course, this is poetry, and it's a, it's a little tough to discern and understand what he's saying, but uh, we, we're going to unpack it for you here. But Zophar basically begins by telling Job that his responses to Eliphaz and Bildad thus far, his multitude of words cannot go unanswered and must be judged rightly by, who do you think? Him. Of the three guys, Zophar's the one who's got the wisdom and got the right response, and he thinks he can do to Job what the others have failed to do thus far. He blames Job for trying to silence the whole group here through incoherent babble and through mocking. And he declares very plainly to Job's face that the battered patriarch deserves, so far, he deserves to be shamed. And and he's the guy who's showed up and listened, and he's the one who has the wisdom. This is the youngest guy. Isn't this typical of younger people? You know, teenagers know everything, that really know nothing. This is the young teenager who knows everything. He's got a fix on life, and he's there to do what the others have failed to do, and it's time. It's time for shaming, Job. This is how he launches his his speech. Verse 4, he says this. He charges Job. He says, For you say... My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. Zophar charges Job with making certain claims about himself, which we cannot find in Job's previous responses. Do you recall, as we've walked through this study so far, where Job ever, and he's quoting him, where he ever literally said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes? Do you recall us ever uh, reading out loud or discussing that? No, you don't, because it's not in the letter in the book thus far. It's not in Job's responses. You can't find it anywhere, to be honest with you. Job did not declare doctrinal purity, even though his doctrine was much purer than theirs. He never declared doctrinal purity. He he never referred to himself as clean in God's eyes, although we know he was, but he never called himself 
clean in God's eyes. He called himself blameless three times in chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. But this doesn't refer to his cleanness before God, his purity before God. It refers to his integrity. Job was blameless, meaning he had godly integrity, and wherever he went, he was the same guy. If you met Job at the 7-Eleven, I don't know why he'd be there, but if you met him there and he was buying a bear claw, he was the same Job that you'd see at church. You wouldn't find him in an alley cursing and, and acting a fool and then at church worshiping Jesus. He was the same godly man. He was blameless. He had this integrity. And so when he calls himself blameless, that's what he's saying. He did call himself innocent in chapter 9, verse 23, but this is because he knew he had committed no sin to warrant the judgment of God, right? Neither of of these two things, neither of these two things, this blameless thing that he said of himself or innocent has to do with actually being clean. He's not saying through those things, I'm clean before God. We don't know what Zophar was specifically referring to here because we can't find Job saying this anywhere in the book, especially thus far. It seems to me that he misinterpreted some of the statements by Job. Uh, That's the only thing I can deduce. In any case, he was slamming Job for trying to tout a kind of perfection which he believed could not be true. Why? Because their rewards and retribution theology would not allow it. Remember, If you suffer, then obviously you're in sin, and it's God who's punishing you. That's their theology. If your life is good and blessed, then you're not walking in habitual sin, and God is blessing and and prospering you. That's their theology in a nutshell. If If you do bad, you get bad from God. If you do good, you get good from God. That is their fundamental theology. And so there's no way in Zophar's mind or in the other friends' minds that Job could be in the right with God because his life was a complete disaster. There's no way that that Job could have pure doctrine or be clean in God's eyes because of the way Job's life was going. That's Zophar's angle. And and it it blows his mind that that Job has defended himself so vehemently against these other two who have made all these allegations against them who are just the greatest doctrinal guys in the world. And Zophar called Job a mocker in verse 3. But who's the mocker here? In verse 4, he basically said, you you think you're pure and clean? Your destroyed life says otherwise, pal. Who's mocking who? The mocker is, it's Zophar. It's not. It's not Job. Verses 5 through 6a, but oh, and Zophar continues in in his, just his brutal rebuke, But oh, that God would speak and open His lips to you, and that He would tell you the secrets of wisdom, exclamation point, for He is manifold in understanding. Job wasn't the only one in this scenario to notice God's silence during the entire ordeal, right? This was one of his complaints throughout the book that, You know, he would pray and pray and pray and pray, and he prayed a lot in this book, and and that he would not hear from God because God was remaining silent until it was time for him to speak. But Job's not the only one who noticed the silence from God here. Zophar also noticed it. And and his, his simple wish, his prayer here is that God would just open his lips and speak and and just tell Job the secrets of his divine wisdom. What are the secrets of divine wisdom according to Zophar? He was undoubtedly referring to the things he thought Job was hiding, his alleged secret sins. If God would just just speak up, Job, and just just show you that he knows that you've been hiding sin, then that would just change everything. That's what Zophar is saying. He tells Job also that, that God is manifold in understanding, which is like saying God is omniscient, which means all knowing. Zophar figures since God is omniscient, since he's manifold in understanding, he knows exactly what Job is hiding. And he, he could easily share this information with the group and then bring it into the battered patriarch's shameful game of hide-and-seek. Now, what Zophar said here is partially true. God has secret wisdom. 
God is manifold in understanding, and He does have secret wisdom. There are things He knows, but that He does not reveal to us. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Right there is a, a wonderful text that shows that, that God has, He has manifold in wisdom, meaning He has all, or manifold in understanding, which means He knows all things, but there are secret bits of His wisdom and knowledge that He does not share with us. Uh, his, his word here is His revelation to us, but it doesn't mean that there aren't certain aspects of it that we'll never, I mean, it, it could mean that there's certain aspects of it that we'll never be able to fully comprehend because it's categorized under His secret wisdom. And in Romans 11.33, the Apostle Paul wrote something that's just pretty mind-blowing. He said, oh, the, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable are His ways. Basically, these, these two other authors of Scripture are saying the same thing that, that Zophar has said here. God is manifold in wisdom. He knows all things, and there, He's manifold in understanding. He knows all things, but He also has secret wisdom. There's wisdom and things that He just does not reveal to us. What are the secrets of God's wisdom? I don't know. They're a secret. But sometimes God reveals His secret wisdom to us in Scripture. There are things that the Old Testament saints did not know or comprehend that are fully revealed in the New Testament. We don't want to say that God always withholds His, you know, His secret wisdom. There are things that He's revealed to us. His secret wisdom regarding the mystery of Christ is revealed in the New Testament that Gentiles, non-Jews, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. That's an example of something that was hidden in the Old Testament, in a sense, and revealed in the New Testament. Secret wisdom becoming wisdom that is revealed. And there are plenty of other examples here. Zophar was also correct about God being manifold in His understanding, not just that God has secret wisdom that He doesn't reveal, but He is, he is totally and thoroughly correct about being manifold in wisdom here. God is omniscient. He knows everything. There's just too many verses to list to affirm this with other Scripture. I mean, Psalm 147 verse 5 is a great one to go to. It says, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. And what does it say? His understanding is infinite. There's no limit to his understanding. That's his omniscience. He does know all things. Zophar is 100% right here on these things. He's right about the secret wisdom of God. He's right about the manifold understanding of, of God. He declared biblical truth when he said these things to Job. But his attitude was terrible, and he was flat wrong about his friend. Job had no hidden sin. Job had no secret sins. There, there was nothing that Job was hiding that God knew about that God could reveal as some kind of secret. So he was right about the truth in a sense, but his attitude was terrible. It, it just stunk, and he was clearly wrong about Job, who was, again, blameless and upright, chapters 1 and 2. Verse 6b, and this is where he gets really ruthless. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. This is, this is, a, this is a, a kick in the face. It's by far the nastiest thing that Zophar said to Job in this first speech. It is the stinging rebuke. It was as if he had said, I want you to grasp that making you go bankrupt, killing your household and farm servants, killing your children, and destroying your health. All that is only paying you back for part of what your unforgiven sin deserves. This is what he's saying to him. You're only getting back a fraction of what God owes you. That's how terrible your sin is, Job. These are not the words of a loving, caring friend. They are the words of an embittered, cruel enemy, a true hater. Zophar is a true hater. His statement isn't accurate theologically either. God never gives less than our guilt deserves. 
Never. His holiness, His righteousness demand full justice. His full justice is either satisfied through Jesus Christ or through eternal punishment of those who reject Jesus Christ. But He gets His full justice either way. God never gives someone less than they deserve. Never. It's not the way the Bible works. It's not the way God works. His righteousness, His holiness demand full judgment, full justice. You think about Jesus. Did He escape God's full justice at the cross? Did He escape it? No, He bore it. He bore it, the full justice, the full wrath of God. God did not spare Jesus anything. And guess what? No unrepentant, unbelieving sinner will escape the full justice of God either. Isaiah 59, 18, God gives to people exactly what they have coming to Him. Nothing less, nothing more. So, Zophar's wrong in telling Job that you didn't get all that you deserve. Job wasn't getting anything that he deserved. Job was blameless and upright. He was an innocent man. He had done nothing wrong, and yet God had called him to the high calling of using him to shame Satan and teach the world that God is worthy to be worshipped, not for what he gives, but for who he is. In God's case, when it comes to justice, either way, full justice is satisfied. Zophar was wrong. It's not how the justice of God works, and Job was neither guilty nor experiencing justice. I like what Christopher Ash wrote. He said, verse 6 shows that however secret God's wisdom may be, Zophar is pretty confident that he knows what it all means. That's the stinging rebuke. Now we go to the second S. Number two, Zophar's sarcastic challenge. We see this in verses 7 through 12. We'll pick it up at 7. Zophar continues his assault of his dear friend. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Zophar sarcastically asks Job if he thinks he can find out the deep things of God and discover the limit of the Almighty. Now, the battered patriarch Job's answer would be no with a capital N. Job never said or implied that he could do this. This again, it's like, where are you coming from with this, Zophar? In fact, while Job was daydreaming about taking God to court, he immediately shot himself down with repeated statements about God's infiniteness. Right? He believed without a doubt that God was just too holy and too perfect and too powerful and too great and, and too knowledgeable, too wise, and, and just too brilliant to try to resist in court. Right? We studied that in chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. If Job believed these things about God, how could he simultaneously believe that he could probe the unfathomable depths of God's secret wisdom, etc., etc.? Zophar's question to Job is moronic. It doesn't fit. Job did not pretend to be an expert in God's wisdom, nor would he ever have attempted to, to find the limits of the Almighty. He knew that the Almighty had no limits, and chapter 9 proves that. It proves that he has a, a solid, healthy, robust theology of God's infiniteness. He never believed for a second that he had the, he, the corner on the market on God's wisdom. I don't know where Zophar comes up with this. Zophar believed that he and God shared wisdom about Job, that he was hiding sin. Therefore, he considered his wisdom to be on par with that of God. When he tried to indict Job for acting like a wisdom expert, he was actually projecting his own views of himself onto Job. We literally call this projection, where somebody blames somebody else for their own sins. He was literally blaming Job for something that he was doing. Zophar would probably never admit to being wise like God, but his words and actions betray him. They give him away. He thinks he's the wisdom expert. I know things about you, and God knows things about you, Job, and you just need to come clean. But you know what? He's not a wisdom expert. He's more like Shemp from the Three Stooges. He is. Me, 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 me. Remember that guy? That's what he is. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. This is why he just drives me crazy. Calm down. 
God's like, don't you sin because of him. Verses 8 and 9, Job, or Zophar continues his assault. It is higher than heaven. He's talking about the wisdom of God. He's talking about God having no parameters, right? It is higher than heaven. What can you do, Job? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. These statements are really beautiful. Zophar describes the Almighty as higher than heaven, deeper than Sheol. That's the underworld, uh, the subterranean, like, it's like hell underground. Uh, he describes them as longer than the earth and broader than the sea. I mean, these statements are all true and they're all backed by Scripture. God is infinite. He transcends and goes beyond everything. But once again, Zophar is preaching to the choir. Job understands this. It's like, Zophar, did you not listen to everything Job said at the beginning of chapter 9? It's like he wasn't actually listening to what Job had said. And maybe he was listening and he just picked things out from it, right? Those little sound bites. The challenge Zophar seems to be making is that Job could never, in a million years, comprehend the vastness of God. And, and you know, because of that, because God knows everything, He knows everything about you, and He's, he's higher than heaven and, and, and deeper than Sheol, the underworld and all this, because of that, you ought to stop trying to hide your sin from the one who has no limits. This is what Zophar is saying. This would be a beautiful and appropriate challenge if Job had been guilty of the things that he's being charged with here. But he didn't pretend to know everything about God, nor was he hiding any kind of sin. He was blameless and upright. You know what? Zophar should have taken his own challenge. He was the one acting like he had the limitless God figured out. It was as if he had said... God is higher, deeper, longer, and broader, but He and I got you pegged, Job. We know you are hiding sin. Because of this, you deserve worse than what you're getting. Repent before it gets worse. That's what Zophar is saying. Verse 10, still speaking of God. If He passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who could turn Him back? Zophar elaborates on the justice of God a little bit here. He tells Job that if the Almighty passes through and puts a guilty sinner in prison and then summons the court, who could possibly stop him? Well, the answer would be no one. No one can stop God from executing justice against guilty sinners. His holiness and righteousness demand justice, right? Like I said, he either put it on Christ or he puts it on you for not repenting. The, tro the, the trouble with Zophar's elaboration is that he was... You know, he was referring to, to Job. Job is the, is, the, is the guilty sinner who's been incarcerated by God here. He, he believes that God, you know, went out and it's a Bonnie and Clyde without the Bonnie situation, that God went out and nabbed old, old Clyde here and Clyde is Job and God has snatched him up and incarcerated him and now he's summoned the courts of heaven against him. This is what Zophar is saying. He's not just making some, giving some kind of metaphor or example. He's talking about Job being the one. He's the guilty person. He's the criminal. And he's telling Job, you've got to repent because there's, there's no other way that you will be able to turn the Almighty back. Your sin demands justice, Job. This is what I'm trying to tell you over and over and over. And, the, and, and your life falling apart shows that you're getting the justice that it deserves. And if you want that justice and if you want all this suffering to end, you've got to follow, you've got to listen to what I'm telling you. You've got to do what I tell you to do. That's what he's saying. Verses 11 and 12. Continuing, speaking of Job and to Job, for he knows worthless men. Job, you're a worthless man. For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man, Job, you're a stupid man. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. That's like, I don't know, what is that, a centaur where you got half man? Oh, you know, it's just weird. Believing Job was refusing to repent because of stubborn arrogance, Zophar sought to humble Job by reminding him that God knows worthless men like you, Job. He knows worthless men, and you're the worthless man that he knows. And Job, he will take every sin into account, especially that of worthless men like you, Job. 
with cutting sarcasm, Zophar used a proverb in which he stated that Job was a stupid man with as much likelihood of gaining a proper understanding of the situation as a wild donkey's colt could be born a man. That's an impossibility, and, and Job trying to, to, trying to fool God and hide things from God and, and all that, that that's, just, that's an impossibility as well. That's what he's saying. Number three, we move to the third S, Zophar's specious offer. Specious means deceptive. We see this in verses 13 through 20. This is a longer section. We pick it up at verses 13 and 14. And this is where Zophar kind of starts singing a different tune here. He tells Job, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Tense means life. Zophar encourages Job to prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward God. To prepare your heart means to turn his heart. The same idiom is used by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, where he told the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away with your foreign gods. We call preparing or turning one's heart repentance, right? The turning of one's heart away from sin toward God or whatever it is, we call that repentance. And what do you think that Zophar means by stretching out your hands toward God? That means prayer. You stretch out your hands and pray. So Job is to repent in his heart of his hidden secret sin, and he is to express this repentance in prayer for forgiveness. This is what Zophar tells him he must do. And in verse 14, Zophar gets more specific. He tells Job to release his grip, like you're hanging on to your sin. You're hanging on to your iniquity. This is what we do as sinners. Sometimes we hang on to that iniquity, that particular sin that we love so much, we hang on to it like our life depended on it, and we will not let it go. Sometimes we say, you're going to have to pry that from my cold, dead hands, God. This is how we are with sin sometimes. And there are certain sins that, get a, 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 that we grip even firmer than others. There's some things that we easily let go of, but there are others that have addictive properties that we hang on to for dear life. We can't imagine our life without that sinful practice. And Zophar's telling Job, you've got you've to release your grip. You've got to let this iniquity of yours go. You've got to no longer let injustice dwell in your tents. Zophar assumed that Job's hidden sin was a type of injustice, right? He brought that up. He literally does not know what sin Job has committed, but he suspects that it's a type of injustice. That's why he says you've got to let the, let the grip go and let the injustice go. The word iniquity suggests that Job had acquired property through wrongdoing, through extortion, or that he had used inaccurate weights and measures to defraud his customers. So Zophar, or Job, again, chapter 1, was the greatest man in all the East. He was the wealthiest man of his day. And Zophar assumes because he was super wealthy, he must have defrauded people to get to the top of the pyramid there. He must have had some kind of scheme. Nobody gets that wealthy legitimately. Job has to have some unlawful, unbiblical business. He's, he's never paid one bit of tax, whatever it is. This is what he assumes. There's an injustice surrounding Job's business. But we know, according to chapters 1 and 2, Job was blameless and upright, which means he had fair, lawful, biblical business practices. But Zophar doesn't believe it. And I think what's driving this in Zophar is jealousy and envy. Look at everything that he's got. He must have cheated. Why would he say he must have cheated? Because Zophar was the cheat. Again, projection. I think it's jealousy for whatever reason. I don't know for sure, but Zophar refused to believe that Job had acquired his previous wealth through legitimate business practices. I think he was projecting again because he was not, he was not a good man. He was, he, was, he was a liar. He was a deceiver. I wonder if he was the actual fraudster, right? And the next... Five lines, Zophar promises seven blessings to Job if he will repent and pray to God for 
forgiveness. This is where it gets really, really practical. Less narrative, more practicality here. I'm just going to identify each one. These are blessings that Job will get. This is the Joel Osteen moment. This is it. Except Zophar is different than Osteen in that he wants Job to repent. Osteen rarely talks about that, only when he's forced to. Number one, these are the things that Job will get if he'll repent and do what Zophar... If you follow my wise advice, remember, I'm wise like God, these are what you'll get. And, and they're, they're really funny. The first one's like a Noxzema commercial. Number one, Job will have clear skin. Verse 15a, surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. Was Job's skin clear right now? No, according to chapter 2, it was covered in brutal boils. And then a little later, in chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that his brutal boils, his, his ghastly flesh and open wounds were covered in worms. Is this promised blessing to Job if he'll repent, is it not appealing? Would it not be appealing to one who has the worst leprosy in the history of the world? Huh? See, one thing we need to understand here is that Zophar knows exactly what Job may want to hear. Every, every blessing he offers is, is, is totally specific to Job's situation. He doesn't offer him random things that wouldn't be appealing. This is a specious offer, remember. It's deceptive, and I'll tell you why in a minute. First thing, clear skin. Job will be in the Noxzema commercials going, bam, look at that cheek. I know it's blinding you. Number two, Job will have security. Verse 15b, you will be secure and not fear. That's a blessing that he would get if he would repent and, and follow Zophar's orders. The promise of security seems very appealing since Job had become terribly fearful, chapter 3, verse 25, right? The security that he had prior to all of his suffering and all of his losses, he had awesome security, he felt good, he, he would walk in confidence, and then when all that stuff happened, that security went out the door, and he became racked with fear every day after, until the latter part of the book. So security, this is a, an appealing offer to him. Zophar knows what he's doing. Number three, Job will forget his misery, verse 16, you, he just plainly says, you will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. Nobody remembers waters that passed away unless they're really thirsty and say, there used to be a stream there, now I'm getting no help. The promise of, of forgetting his misery, it seems appealing since Job focused on his misery quite a bit, <laughs> right? Chapter 3, verse 20, I'm in misery. Chapter 7, verse 3, I'm in misery. Throughout the book, I'm in misery. Guess what? You repent and believe misery gone. You won't even be thinking about that anymore. You'll forget all those. How do you forget the death of 10 children? Are you a sociopathic parent? You don't forget children that, that you've lost. You don't. And I don't know if you'd be able to forget your skin because you'd probably have scars where all the boils were. How are you going to just forget about this? This is stupid. But Job was probably like, hmm, Noxema, security, no more misery, I'll forget about all of it, like waters that have passed away. Number four, Job will have a bright future. You know, God has a plan for your life, right? A plan to prosper you. And verse 17, he says, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Pretty bright over there in that area at noon. Its darkness will be like the morning. The promise of a bright future seems appealing since Job's present situation was just absolute darkness. He said this, chapter 3, verse 4. You'll have a bright future if you repent and believe. God will be on your side again, and He's going to prosper you like He did before you sinned. Everything's going to be, it'll be so bright, you'll have to wear shades. Remember that dumb song? You're like, I was trying to forget it until you brought it up. Number five, Job will find hope and rest. This is a dual promise packed into verse 18. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. The promises of hope and rest seem appealing since Job's hope had run out, chapter 7, verse 6. And trouble 
disturbed his rest, chapter 3, verse 26. These are things that he's already revealed to us. Well, who doesn't want hope and rest? Who doesn't want rest? Any insomniacs in here? That's horrible. Number six kind of parallels with, with number five. Job, if you repent and follow my orders, you will have no more nightmares. Verse 19a, he says, you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. The promise of no nightmares seems appealing since nightmares are what kept Job up at night. Chapter 7, verse 14, remember how he indicts God? And you strike me with these terrifying dreams. As soon as I lie down on my couch, as soon as, I, as soon as I start to drift off, I'm hit with all these terrifying, terrifying visions and dreams and nightmares. And I, I can't get a moment's rest. This is his complaint to God there. But Zophar says, nightmares, gone. He's like a snake oil salesman. I've been having nightmares lately. I bought a $5 milkshake and then paid $4 tax. How is that a nightmare? I told Rachel about it the other day. She goes, you have nightmares about food? Yes, I love food so much that I dream about it. And when I get ripped off paying $4 tax on a milkshake, people are going to know about it the next day. That's Biden's America. It's coming. Had to do it. Had to go there. Mmm, yeah. Take that out of the recording. Anyone really offended by that in here? Vern's laughing, so I know he's good. Hey, he wants to raise taxes on an economy that's not doing so great. That makes no sense. That's the end of my political spiel for now. No more milkshake nightmares, Phil. I dream about milkshakes. I'm one pathetic loser. That's what happens when you hit 50. You just think about food all the time. Number seven. This is probably the biggest one. Maybe. I don't know. The skin to me would be pretty important. The nightmares would be bad because that kills your sleep. But this one's, this one's big. Number seven, this is what will happen if you repent. Follow my orders, Job. Listen to Zophar. I'm 12. Listen to me. Right, he's the youngest. Job will have a renewed status in society, verse 19b. The promise of renewed status seems appealing since Job had lost his high position at the city gate and lost the respect of his peers and neighbors. We read about that in chapter 29, verses 7 through 11. The, the, the highest ranking people in a society... The elites of that day would hold governing positions at the city gate. The city gate was like the town hall. They literally had a circular table at the city gate in these ancient cities, Uz and these other ones, Ur, Uz, whatever city. And he had a position there. Go, go read that text in 29 verses 7 through 11. It, it talks about how princes, if Job was speaking, princes would walk by and shut their mouths. That was his position. Guess what? When he turned into the elephant man with sores all over him, position gone. Position gone. He lost it. And, 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 and what is Zophar saying here? You'll have that position again. He sounds a little bit like throw yourself off the temple. You know, I'll give you all the things of, the, of this world, right? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. These are the seven promised blessings to Job from his alleged friend Zophar. I think we would all agree that they, they are seemingly good, right? I mean, what's wrong with these blessings? These are blessings that Job once enjoyed. Could he not benefit from them again? Of course. So, so the question is, what makes this, this offer of these, these blessings to Job, what makes it specious? Why is it specious? Why is it deceptive? Well, the motivation Zophar gives to Job for repentance, blessings, is precisely the motivation of Satan's accusation. Satan thinks that Job has only been pious in order that his piety will win him prosperity. That's his accusation against God and against Job, chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. If Job repents in order to regain these blessings, what's he going to do? He's going to prove Satan right. That's why it's specious. That's why it's deceptive. That's why it's satanic. Zophar sounds like today's prosperity preachers, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Boy, does he ever. 
The thing that separates Zophar from the guys in our day is that he actually mentioned repentance. Wow, he gets extra points. The thing that unites him, the thing that unites him with today's prosperity preachers is his Satan-affirming specious message. Be pious so that you can get divine blessings. That's what ties him. That's what ties his satanic message to the satanic message of today's prosperity preachers. Imagine Joel Osteen with a scowl on his face instead of those gigantic white teeth. Imagine him with a scowl on his face and a raised voice instead of going, hey, he's like the Bob Ross of preachers, right? We're going to paint in a little attribute blue here for the sky, remember? That's how he preaches. Imagine, imagine though, Joel Osteen with a scowl on his face like me right now, ah, with his voice raised, talking to his people about repentance so they could get good things from God. That's Zophar. That's Zophar. Zophar concluded his speech with a terrifying warning in the last line. Zophar can't end his speech to Job with, here's all the blessings you get. He's going to have to tell him, if you don't do what I tell you to do, here's what's going to happen, right? This is what he does in verse 20. He says, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. Zophar piles up three terrible pictures for wicked Job if he doesn't repent. First, his eyes will fail. This isn't that that God would literally strike him with blindness. It it has to do with the fact that sometimes when people are near death, when 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 they're passing away, they lose their eyesight. Their eyesight goes out as they're dying. And that's what he's talking about here. It's vision loss that accompanies approaching death. Second, He will have no escape from the full justice of God. Remember, he only got part of it. He'll have no escape from the rest of it, which will be his terrible and inescapable fate. And third, his hope will paradoxically be just a dying wheeze or the last gasp of a dying man. Boy, you got to do what I tell you to do, Job, or else. You could have these blessings or you could have these curses and this death and this blindness and and these things. And all the while, the man he's preaching to is blameless and upright. Closing. Ben Franklin once called half-truths a great lie. Some wisdom in that statement. I think a theologian years ago called half-truths no-truths. But I like Ben Franklin's use of it. It's a great lie when we tell half-truths. It's a great lie. We need to understand that Zophar preached truths in his first speech. He did. He preached some truth, didn't he? The deep things of God cannot be found out by men, verse 7. That's a truth. God has no limits. He is higher than heaven, deeper than Sheol, longer than the earth, broader than the sea, verse 8. That's a truth. Our God is infinite. The eyes of the wicked will fail, and there is no way of escape from God's justice. Verse 20, truth, these are truths, truths that are all backed by Scripture. We could go into a whole bunch of cross-referencing verses to, to bolster these things up. These are truths, no doubt. But according to God, these truths were only half-truths. This is made clear in chapter 42, verse 7, where God rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. How could God, a perfect God, how could God consider Zophar's truths half-truths when the Bible teaches them as truths? Was God wrong? Is the Bible wrong? Is there a contradiction here? No, no, and no. God considered Zophar's truths have truths because of the way Zophar handled them. 
It was his attitude and the vein in which he spoke truth that angered God and caused him to reject his counsel to Job. Listen, any truth, no matter how simple or complex, is nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal when it is shared without love. 1 Corinthians 13.1, if I speak in the tongues of angels and have not love, I am hip-hop, bad music. I've been picking on hip-hop lately. It needs it. Think about Zophar's speech to Job. He spoke to Job. When he spoke to Job, he was mean. He was critical. He was judgmental. He was hateful. He had no love in his heart or on his lips. This is why God considered his truths half-truths and rejected his counsel to Job. Warren Wiersbe once called truth without love brutality. I wonder if he based his assessment on Job 11. Did Zophar not brutalize Job with truth? He hammered him. He beat him. He verbally assaulted him with truth. If the truth we speak isn't accompanied by love, we are brutalizing our hearers, just as Zophar brutalized Job. Our truths, no matter how truthful they may be, when spoken without love, are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And we should not expect God to be pleased with what we are doing. He will reject our, our counsel to others, just as He rejected Zophar's, Bildad's, and Eliphaz's. He will say to us, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Do you see how critical it is that we speak truth in love? Because without love, it is brutality. This is why I had to get rid of social media, because I would speak the truth in a brutal way. It wasn't because I really cared about what pizza people thought about my pizza. Why well, ate at Mountain Mike's? You're an idiot because roundtable rules. Who cares? It was because I would write them back 10 pages on why Mountain Mike's is right, and they're an idiot. I had to get rid of social media because of me, not because of them. Because it, it stoked the flames of my narcissism and pride. And it caused me to respond to people in a way with lots and lots of truth. I would pile truth on people. That I, it just, I would just take a thousand Bibles and stack it on them. They couldn't even breathe. But in, in my heart, I'd be going, yeah, take that, pagan. <laughs> and then I read this. I read this text and it's like, you have not spoken of me what is right. How have you been speaking to people? You know, <laughs> what we're reading and looking at here is a counseling session. This is literal Christian counseling with three counselors who traveled a great distance to give counsel to a hurting man. And this is the counsel they gave him. Can you imagine going to a Christian counselor and having them do this to you? It just, it just tells me that we need to be very mindful and careful with how we carry the truth and how we convey the truth and how we communicate the truth. We must do it in love, whether we be in a counseling you know, situation or street preaching, which some of you guys in here like to do, or just interacting with your family and your children, the truth has to be spoken love. Now, love doesn't mean we soften up the truth. The truth is the truth. But the way that we convey it, if we have a genuine desire for people to experience the mercy and grace of God, because that's what we've experienced, we want them to know the love of God as we have been discovering it, then you're going to speak it in a way that's that's gentle and meek and kind and not overbearing and not judgmental, not me on Facebook.
The way that we speak matters. God is listening at all times. If we have spoken without love, half-truths, the good news is the Lord Jesus forgives. He forgives. He's a forgiver. He is infinite in mercy toward His people. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we call upon the Lord Jesus and confess our unloving ways, our half-truths. May we confess these things to Him. And may we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, commit ourselves to speaking the truth in love because that is what the Lord Jesus accepts. And that, my friends, is what brings Him glory. You can speak a thousand truths, but if there isn't one bit of love in them, it does not bring Him glory. And, And would we all admit that this is a great struggle for all of us? Because sometimes we're responding in the midst of a situation and we've been angered. This is when you don't give counsel. You walk away and come back in six months. Hi, I'm not mad at you anymore. Now I can speak the truth in love. Sometimes we just need to shut up. It's not an easy thing to do. And often it's it's not a deliberate thing that we do, right? We don't deliberately aim to tear people down with truth. I mean, you can on social media if you get mad about your pizza favorite. But, you know, it's not, it's not my heart of hearts to want to do that. Is it your heart of hearts? No. Not as a believer, but it can happen, and it happens frequently. And I think the, the first target in our lives are those who are closest to us, right? Right? Well, we hammer them. Well, it doesn't matter. They're family. I think God has a, maybe He has a higher expectation for how we would treat our own loved ones and our brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think He's got a higher expectation there than outside of that. So, so if, if we're gentle and meek and lowly and loving with the truth to outsiders, but we love to hatchet up our families with it, God's not happy with us. He will discipline us. And it's easy to get that way, especially in marriage. God takes two nasty sinners and puts them together under the same roof. Oh, Lord, what were you thinking? Huh? Amen? Bruce, don't look away. He's all, oh, I can't make eye contact with him. And staring at him the whole time like, listen to him, you sucker fish. It's true, but we need to know that the Lord will forgive us. And let's commit ourselves to speaking the truth in love or not speaking at all. Amen? Amen. Speak it in love and trust that the Lord will take that truth and accomplish His will with it. You know, His Word never returns void. Never. Never. But sometimes He can void out truth when it's not represented by us rightly. It doesn't accurately represent Him, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? You think about God. And how amazingly brilliant he is that you can actually speak real truth. And we think we're doing it right. And we're doing it without a loving heart. And he rejects even the truth at that point. That's what he says to these men. And they spoke a lot of truth, but there was no love. And so God rejects their counsel. May he never, may he not reject our counsel because we speak it in love. Amen? Amen. Amen. We can start fresh today. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for... Zophar. And uh, earlier I said I didn't like him and I hated him and I, I, I was not loving. And um, actually Zophar reminds me of me because I do that sometimes. So forgive me and uh, help us, Lord, to, to really seek to benefit others with the Word and the truth. That's a loving heart. That's a loving spirit if we really want people to know you. We really want them to be transformed by your love and your power and your mercy and your grace, the gospel. Help us to be loving communicators of the truth. I know we fall short, Lord. I know I do all the time. And Lord, I pray that you forgive us. Renew us now by your Spirit and 
fill us with your spirit. May we go out of this place today determined to speak the truth in the love of God. May we do that. Help us to do that. May we worship you through song now. You're a good, a good and gracious king. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.